you have single-handedly changed our family because of mastermind because i felt safe enough and realized with your help realized that it's not just about the picking up of the toys and the back talk and the productive conversation scripts it's not about that it's about healing myself and becoming a better version of myself and showing up and being able to be that way for my entire family I really credit you with doing something that I literally have not been able to do with countless therapists and all the journaling and all the thinking and all the meditating and all the things. It was because of you. So thank you for helping heal what I thought was unhealable. My name is Randy Rubenstein, and welcome to the Mastermind Parenting Podcast. At Mastermind Parenting, we're on a mission to support strong-willed kids and the families that love them. You're listening to the Mastermind Parenting Podcast with Randy Rubenstein, episode 188. Well, hi, guys. How are you? The last couple of episodes, I've been kind of hitting on some heavy topics and sharing a little bit about my process and that I'm testing some hypotheses right now. And I've been picking a lot of mom's brains about just what we're most worried about. Usually it's moms who are in a different place, but not so far away from when life felt just so stressful and unmanageable that they can still remember what it was like. And so I've really been asking them, like, what are the thoughts in your head? What are your secret worries? What are you thinking? What are you asking? How were you kind of searching for solutions when you were worried about your child or knowing that you needed to take a parenting class or that life felt too stressful and it's not supposed to be this way. Like I have a lot of moms that, you know, I attract resourceful problem solving people. I mean, there's plenty of people I know in my personal life who are just what I call story fondlers. Like they live in that place of victim energy. And this is not that toxic positivity. Like life is so good. What are you complaining about? Like, no, that's not it. But There's also this thing of like identifying what we're feeling, what we're thinking when there's a problem we're trying to solve, and then going through the process of finding resources, learning new things, and not just staying stuck in Stuckville. Okay. So I feel like I really attract people who are action taking. You know, it's funny. uh, I have a lot of female physicians in my program. And female physicians are like my favorite people because they have been through it. And that's why I also chose Sarah, who's a female physician, to write a book with me, the current book that I'm working on that I've been sharing a little bit about in the last few episodes. Because female physicians, it's a it's an interesting perspective, just like what they've been through to become a doctor right? Like it's a grueling process going to medical school and then doing your residency. I mean, it's, you know, sleep deprivation and there is a good old boys club mentality. And so when you are a woman who has gone through all of that, 
So Sarah and I, part of our process, we've been meeting on Fridays and just having these little assignments and and working on this book and mostly like planning it out, mapping it out, figuring out what our core message is, what what's our intent, like what's her intention, what's my intention. And so I've just been getting a lot of behind the scenes, like pulling back the curtains, what's really going on for these female physicians. I already know a lot because I coach them all the time on you know, what's going on in their lives and in their households. But something silly, like, so Sarah and I, we started going on these little mini writing retreats. So for like 24 hours, we go somewhere away, we stay somewhere away, and we just go kind of balls to the wall for 24 hours. And I'm an extremist. So that's kind of how I work best. Like I was that kid that was the procrastinator, but then I'd pull out my best work at the 11th hour. And so now I've just kind of figured out that's how I like to work. I don't like to draw things out over a long period of time. I like to sort of stay in whatever mindset I'm in and just really be intense and extreme. And that's really how I wrote my first book. And so you know, sometimes it can be a little intense and you don't know how people work. And so Sarah and I, the first night we were up and we were up late and we just been like talking and she was, you know, writing all these things out. Her brain is just so brilliant where she'll take what I'm thinking and then she just organizes it in this beautiful way. And she's got this gorgeous handwriting. And so she was just, she was just whip out all this amazing work. You know, I just was kind of just like in awe of her. And so right before we went to bed and it was late, I was like, you really kept up with me. And I have to say, I know I can be a lot like I'm intense when I get into that mode. And I kind of like to say like, I have an addict brain. Like I'm really lucky that I never did any kind of crazy hard addictive drugs because I just get so intense and I know I have that extreme version of my personality. And she's like, yeah, once you go through college, medical school, residency, like there's so much focus that's needed. She's like, I used to go and like sit in this one spot and for like 12 hours, just do nothing else. And I was like, gosh, I mean, the diligence that she has. So then I said to her, I have to ask, you've been drinking pretty much as much water as I drink. Do you ever pee? And she said, well, like twice a day. And, you know, as a resident and then as a doctor, like there's no time to go pee. So I've just like trained my blood. She goes, it's probably terrible for me and I'm really going to regret it when I'm older. Anyway, she probably wouldn't appreciate me sharing that. But I was like, that to me is the perfect metaphor for what what are female physicians, how they have trained themselves. I don't know. I don't, I just don't believe that the men are doing that. Maybe they are. I can be a little reverse sexist sometimes, but I was just like, you pee twice a day. It's like a dog that lives in New York city. You know, like, like my dogs go to the bathroom all the time in and out, in and out. But I was just like, wow, that's amazing. So anyway, we've been working on this project, working on this book, really wanting to change the conversation. And there's a lot of ideas swirling in my head. And so what I really want to do is I want to share with you just some of the research and some of the conversations we've been having. And I'm just thinking, if you're thinking any of these things and you relate to this, at least you will know that you're not crazy. And I think it's 
part of figuring out what the solution is to solving the current problem that you're in your brain, you're trying to figure out, I think is, is making sense of it and understanding that you're not the only one. Like I'll never forget, like I had been, oh, learning and researching and, and yeah, I had already been teaching parenting classes based on this program, Conscious Discipline, which is really a program for teachers. And, and when Alec was 10, he's now 24. But when Alec was 10, I'd been teaching these conscious parenting classes. Like life was so much better than it had been when he was little. And then I read this book, The Highly Sensitive Child. And I already knew so much. I mean, I didn't know everything, obviously, and I have never stopped learning. But it was so cool because when I read this book, The Highly Sensitive Child, it really didn't give me any new information. It was all stuff that I already had learned for the most part, but just reading in one book a description of everything I was experiencing with my own kid, I remember it just felt so comforting to me. Like, there's a book. Like, this is my kid. They just described my kid. Like, now I have words to put with this. There's a category. I don't have to be feeling like I'm figuring all of this out alone. Like just reading that book made me feel less alone. And I don't know, it just, it, it propelled me forward. It helped me make sense of things. It helped me kind of get clean and clear in my own head about it. So that's kind of my intention here. So the question I want to look at today, this is a vulnerable one. This is the thing that people are thinking, maybe Googling, but maybe just thinking is there something wrong with my kid? So the the other questions, like the kind of build-up questions, you know, is this just a phase? Is it normal for kids to, you know, I remember asking Alex's pre- preschool teacher when he was like three and a half, is it normal for him to just have one friend that he wants to play with every single day? Like, is that, I was thinking, is there something wrong? You know, aren't you, when you're a little kid, just supposed to be footloose and fancy free and play with all the kids in your class? Like, I was thinking, is everything okay with him? Or like, before he went to kindergarten, we went in and we met with the teachers for the preschool, you know, teacher conference. And he went to school and he listened, he followed rules. You know, he was the kid who had that after school restraint collapse where he would you know, get overstimulated all day, taking it all in as a highly sensitive little person. And then he would come home and just be in a terrible mood and really let it all out, you know? So he really would decompress once he got home. But while he was at school, he held it all together. And so, you know, the teachers loved him and loved us. And I was a stay-at-home mom and I volunteered because really, I really volunteered mostly because I just wanted to keep an eye on him because I was always worried. And I was thinking, is there something wrong with him? But I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have said it, but I was thinking it. I was worried about that. Like he's still little, like, is everything developmentally normal? You know, like what's going on? Like he would do this wincing thing whenever we would throw a ball to him. Is that normal? Is that, then I would look at all the other kids to see if there was any other kids doing that. So I was always kind of, I think, worried, like, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Anyway, when we went in, that preschool teacher that I had asked that of when he was three and a half, she was great. She was like, some people are one-on-one people. Probably means he's going to make a really good husband one day. 
And I was like, he's probably going to make a really good husband. When Like my husband's like that. He pretty much just wants to be with me. So, okay. Like that helped me to feel like, okay, this is okay. And then when he was in pre-K and we went in, you know, they're like, he's great. Y'all are the best parents, you know, have a nice life basically. And my husband, who is more of a detail person, and, you know, I just wanted to hear that my kid was okay and that we were great parents and, you know, let's hug and sing Kumbaya. But really, my husband, who doesn't get swept up in all that, he's like, yeah, great, fine. Uh huh. Hey, all the kids' rainbows are on the wall and they look like rainbows, but Alex's rainbow, <laughs> it doesn't look like a rainbow. What's going on there? And they were like, oh, you know, kids develop a difference. Fine. Blah, 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 blah. And when we left, Scott was like, there's something going on. You know, I'm not sure. I, I think we need to look into this more. And that was when we took him for his first evaluation with a diagnostician. And I said, you know, we'll go and we'll get him evaluated. And then we can really figure out where we want to send him for kindergarten. And when we took him to get evaluated, he was he was a little over five. And that was when he got diagnosed. I mean, he's 24, you guys. So I'm aging myself here. But it was before sensory processing disorder. That was a whole thing. And they just called it fine motor delay. So he was five, I think, in a couple months, maybe five in two months, because he's a February birthday. And she she pretty much put him developmentally at, you know, in terms of fine motor skills at the age of about three and a half. And so he had been in this private preschool. All the teachers had loved him. I'd been there volunteering. Nobody ever said one word about the fact that he had a pretty strong fine motor delay. And that was when I started taking him to occupational therapy. And I took him to occupational therapy every single week. So this thing, if you're thinking, is there something wrong with my kid? I've seen it with those of us who went down kind of this path where we went to the diagnosticians and maybe we found, we got some information, different information along the way. I mean, that was not our first stop. That was not our first diagnostician evaluation. Let me just tell you, there were several more as the years went on. But if you have something in you saying, I wonder, is there something wrong? I would say you want to do what you can do at home. Like we had, you want to learn like mastermind tools. You want to have, you know, all the things I talk about, you know, come and join my program. I'll teach you all the things, how to structure your household, how to really set your kids up for success, how to investigate and, and truly understand how your child's wired, communicating with them with empathy impact leadership you know, helping them to feel emotionally safe, emotionally regulated, understanding when they're not doing well, there's a reason, there's something to figure out. And when you're doing all the things, they're they're properly rested, you know, their sleep hygiene is great. Maybe like my kids, they might be eat to live rather than live to eat kids. You know, if they're eat to live kids, you're like, ah, they're not the best eaters, And yeah, they're getting a decent amount of, you know, yes, they mostly want pasta or chicken 
fingers or chicken or whatever, but yeah, I'm getting some fruits. I'm getting some vegetables and they, they, it's not just pantry serving all the time. They're, they're eating decently. Okay. So if you know that those things are happening and you're spending that quality time and you're setting them up for success. You know, your household is a pretty well run machine and you still feel like, I think there might be something wrong or something to figure out. That's what I would have said. I think there's something to figure out. It was like a puzzle I was trying to solve. He was like a puzzle I was trying to solve. If you have that going on, what I want to urge you to do is to go and get your child evaluated. And you can absolutely ask for a recommendation from your pediatrician. You can ask around to other moms that you trust, but find your resources and get your kids evaluated. It might be a neuropsych evaluation. It might be an uh, an evaluation by an occupational or a speech therapist. It might be um, an evaluation from a diagnostician. You know, so a lot of uh, psychologists' office have someone in their office that that do these types of evaluations. But I would say go through it and get your kid evaluated. Because if I hadn't known that Alec had this fine motor delay, like we went to occupational therapy. I took him every single week for eight months. And they did this program. I loved it called Handwriting Without Tears. I bought it for home. So I would like, they thought I was crazy because like, they were very, very cool. I, I took them to Texas Children's Hospital here because I was like, we live right by the medical center in Houston. Like, why would I not just take them to Texas Children's? I went to Texas Children's and I asked the OT, I said, can I sit in here? And Alec knew because we had had this whole thing of he hated transition. So he always was not great when it was like a new school year or new camp or whatever. So we had this kind of situation where if he was at school or doing work, I would sit in the back and give him a few minutes until he was comfortable. And I would wait till he was comfortable. I would leave, but I would say like, if I'm at school, like it's not you coming in, talking to me or sitting on my lap. Like I'm just there until you feel comfortable and safe. And I'm not there for you to talk to me. Like the teacher is in charge, right? So got it. So we had this whole deal. So he was used to me kind of being there, a fly on the wall. And I know that might sound crazy to you guys, but I'm so glad I did that where I was like, yeah, preschool teacher who's telling me that they stop crying five minutes after they leave. Like I sensed that my kid was sensitive and like I wasn't in a rush to get to work. I didn't have anywhere I really had to be. And I was like, no, I'm staying until he's comfortable. I wanted him to feel safe in the world. And it worked. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. I'm so glad that I did that. And I know it's not the norm and it might sound crazy to you guys, but I'm okay with that. So anyway, so he was used to that. So I sat in the back, um, and watched the OT work with him and really work with him on these five motor skills for handwriting. And so I ended up buying the handwriting without tears at home. And it came with all these like cute wooden things and, we would just practice and do it at home because I wanted to reinforce what they were doing, what the OT was doing. I mean, that just made sense to me. Like, how could he go somewhere once a week and then the next week remember what he had done? 
Like I wanted to reinforce it at home. So we practiced daily at home and they did some other things with him there as well. But that was kind of the main thing. And after eight months, I mean, his fine motor delay was, he had caught up and I will never forget that summer, that summer before kindergarten, I think it was, we went, we, we rented a condo and we stayed at the beach for like three weeks or a month. And every day while his younger sister, Avery, she was two would nap. I had brought him a sketch pad and a bunch of pencils and he was the most incredible artist. And still to this day, he is such an amazing artist. And that was when it came out. It was after he had gone through OT and he got, he took so much pride in, and it was amazing. And from that time on, he was an artist. Hey, podcast listeners, you know, I've had the privilege of working with thousands of families over the years, and I haven't met one parent yet who hasn't had the thought pop into their mind. I might be totally screwing this up. What if something I do now messes them up later? You know, this thought usually follows popular discipline methods like spanking, timeout, and sticker charts, because we want to take behavior that we perceive as bad, and we want to teach our kids right from wrong. I'm going to bust this myth wide open. The myth that you need to punish your kids and the myth that you're screwing them up. Yes, it's true. Kids need guidance and they need to be taught what's okay and what's not okay. Kids are resilient and so are you. You have a good kid that's having a hard time, period. All you need is a simple shift in your mindset. I've created an intensive mini program that contains a five-part video training series and three days of intensive coaching live with me. It's called How to Set Limits Without Spanking, Timeouts, or Sticker Charts. You're going to learn how to take back control of your household in a way that empowers you and your kids. You will learn how to gain respect from not just your strong-willed child, but all your kids and all the people in your life. You're going to learn how to run your household without chaos, get back more time for yourself, help your kids improve socially at home and at school, and feel confident that you're absolutely not screwing them up. So don't miss out. Grab your training, save your seat. It's only $29, mastermindparenting.com forward slash setting limits. That's how you sign up. And I can't wait to see you in this all new, brand new program. So I really want to urge you guys, if you have that in you where you're thinking there's something, get them evaluated and know that there's amazing resources out there. So just because your child might have this delay or that delay, it's fine. It's fine because you're a resourceful, badass mama and you're going to go and find the resources and support them. Okay. So what happens? if your kid has a diagnosis or a label, something that's maybe a little more like it's your worst fear, the thing you were so worried about, you know, it's like ADHD or high functioning autism, or don't even talk to me about ODD because I know a lot of kids who are strong-willed get labeled as ODD, but I'm like, hmm, come do mastermind parenting let do it for for a year and then let's see if your kid is still ODD. Like I don't have one parent at Mastermind Parenting that works with us 
that has a child that they believe is ODD. And if anybody ever had an ODD diagnosis by the time they're done at Mastermind Parenting, that's not even a thing. Like, no. But let's say you've gotten some label or diagnosis and you're thinking, is my child going to be like this forever? What does this mean? I was talking with Sarah about this because she's been meeting with some of her colleagues, kind of just doing some research for the book. And she was talking to a colleague who is a child psychiatrist. And this child psychiatrist was saying, she was saying like, why are we so into diagnosing and labeling kids? And he was saying, you know, it's like, it's almost like our hands are tied because insurance, for insurance to pay for the sessions and then whatever resources are needed, you have to have that label or diagnosis. But the thing, and he admitted, he said, but the problem is, is that you get the label or the diagnosis and what we sort of fail parents in helping them with is the, okay, we've gotten this label or this diagnosis. Now what? Like now what? Even that OT years ago, like she was like, at first she was kind of taken aback that I wanted to sit in the room and watch what she was doing with Alec. I'm sure she just thought I was a nut job helicoptering and whatever. But pretty soon she figured out that no, I just wanted to see how she was doing it so that when I reinforced it at home, I could do it the same way and I would do it right. So she very quickly became super friendly towards me. And and I remember her saying at one point, I don't know that I like understood that it was as big a deal, but she was like, it's so nice. Like he's improving so quickly. I remember thinking, oh, great. But now I'm like, I think it's because this is not the norm. It's like you drop your kid off go in the session, and then parents sit in the waiting room. And I think the professional, it can be hard because once the parent's in there, because the parent doesn't understand the PAC leadership piece, like how I taught Alec, when you're at school or when you're working with someone who's teaching you a skill, I'm staying until you're comfortable, or I'm here watching what you guys are doing so I can know how to teach you these things at home. But that's the person you're listening to. I'm invisible in those moments. You are not to be talking with me. That's the person that is in charge. And so my PAC leadership was very strong. And I think these professionals probably know that once parent gets in there, next thing you know, the kid's like, I don't want to, mommy. And they don't understand how to have that PAC leadership. And so it probably makes life more difficult for the professional. But yeah, I think that is a screwed up thing. Like, like we need to change that conversation that it's helpful when mom or dad is in the session so that they can then reinforce these skills at home. Or if you have a, somebody like an occupational therapist that goes to your child's school to work with them, like understanding what are the skills they're working with them on. And so reinforcing those skills at home so that the next week, the, the professional doesn't have to sort of start over again and just add a tiny bit. It's like everything happens so much faster. But this child psychiatrist was saying to Sarah, he was saying, you know, I agree. Like we give them these labels, but then 
we're not really equipping parents with the now what, like this is what you do. This is how you can actually help your child. This is not a life sentence. And sometimes those labels are necessary because with those labels, your child can get the support they need at school. They can get an IEP or they can get extra time on tests. And and so you want to be able to help your child in the way they're designed and they they learn best. You want to meet them where they are. So you need these labels. But I think so often we just, it's like we just stop at the label and then we don't focus on what the lagging skills are and what we really need to help our kids with. And that if we bring professionals in to help them with these skills, reinforcing them at home is is critical. And so many of us have gotten the label or the diagnosis, but we haven't gotten the now what. And then we're left to sort of reinvent the wheel and reinvent the wheel and reinvent the wheel. And and I want you guys to know if you if you're sitting here going, yes, exactly, exactly, please reach out to us at Mastermind Parenting because we have a whole community of parents who are going through this and we just pool our resources constantly so that nobody has to figure this out all alone. There's another school of parents that I've seen over the years who never get their kids evaluated, but yet they know there's something to figure out. There's something wrong. And even saying there's something wrong, y'all, that's loaded because there's really not anything wrong. It's just, we're worried that there's something wrong. Uh, if your child is wired differently, like even Alec, who had the sensory, uh, the fine motor delay, um, and really it was probably sensory processing disorder, like we helped him build up those skills. And then, he, you know, it was like, no, it was all figure outable. It's not a big deal. And it turns out he is a highly sensitive person. And that is his superpower. Like, honestly, that is his, like, I can look at him at 24 and we've known this for a long time. Like, he, he always just knows the truth. I mean, like, it's amazing. He's actually living back at home with us now. And so as a young adult, and it's unbelievable the things that he teaches us because he feels things more deeply. He sees things a lot of times more clearly. Like I see a lot in gray and he can really kind of cut to the chase. And he's just so funny, like his wit, his power of observation that he has, like this is his superpower, honestly, that high sensitivity, like there isn't anything wrong with him. And when he was little, I knew there was something to figure out so that I could support him to grow up into the person that he has been able to grow up to be. So the other school of parents, I think, are people who know there's something to figure out or they're worried something's wrong and they just want to put their head in the sand and pretend it's all okay until things get really terrible, usually around middle school. And they're sort of forced to find resources to help them. But they really had an inkling that something was going on when their child was very little, but they were just avoiders. You know, they just avoided. And I have to say, if you're like, oh, it's so hard. I don't want to look at that. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And every time you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that your kid is normal and fine and you don't push it because you're just temporarily, superficially comforted, I really want to implore you to pull the covers back, be willing to look because there are amazing 
resources out there and your kid's going to benefit. Okay. So no head in the sand parenting. The other thing I thought was interesting, Sarah was saying that when she was talking to this child psychiatrist and he was saying, yes, I think we do a terrible job with the now what, and he was agreeing with so many of our theories and our philosophies and our hypotheses. He said, you know, it's so hard because people are not open to you talking about their parenting. So, you know, they come in, they get their kid evaluated. Now the kid has a label and he said, anytime he's tried to ask or evaluate what's going on at home, or let's sort of look at what your systems are at home or what's going on with your parenting or how you guys are disciplining. He said, 99.9% of the time, the person gets either they get outwardly sort of, you know, offended and defensive, or they act cool with it and he never hears from them again. But he said, if any time he brings up parenting, so people are here getting a label, getting a diagnosis, but if he brings up parenting and things that could shift or change at home, he never hears from the people again. It's so vulnerable, I think, when we feel like our parenting is being evaluated. You know, we just so want to be a good parent. And I just want y'all to know that like, that is, that's all ego. That does not serve our kids. Like to be a good parent really just means to have the courage to look at this little human four-leaf clover that you were given and to figure out who they are and what they need and how you can support them. We've got to stop making it about us. And that goes both ways. You know, when somebody is complimenting you because your kids are, you know, so well-mannered or, you know, so athletic or so smart and read all, whatever it is, when we take credit for, you know, somebody's, you know, somebody giving our kid a compliment and it pumps us up and it makes us feel good about ourselves. I want y'all to look at that. Like really, because, because that will get in your way all day long. Like we have to start seeing our kids as little individual humans. And that's the only way we can really help them. That's the only way that we can truly support them. If we make their behavior mean something about us rather than getting curious and figuring it out, figuring out how we can help them. I mean, really, I think that's the main obstacle. And I think kids who are raised with parents who are not willing to really quit taking it personally and get curious and look at what's going on with their kid and constantly are kind of doing this egoic parenting. I think those are the kids that are the angriest. Really, those are the kids that are the absolute angriest. So when we get over our own egos, and we really work hard to stop worrying about other people's judgment for not knowing all the things. And when we're willing to learn new things, when we're willing to learn new things, when we're willing to say, I think there's something to figure out and I'm going to look at the hard thing. I'm going to seek resources. I'm going to get my child evaluated. I'm going to find the now what if my kid has a label or a diagnosis. I think that is the most generous 
and loving and unselfish thing you can do for your kids. I believe that takes a lot of vulnerability and that is the sign of a good parent. Okay. So it's so hard. It's so, so hard. And don't think I've gotten this right. I mean, when Alec was like seven and a half, this was a pivotal moment for me was when, I don't know, I was, I was hyper-focused or trying to fix him, but, you know, micromanaging something or beating a dead horse about something. And I thought it was love. I thought it was me caring for him, but it really felt a whole lot like control. It was. It just all that micromanagement and constant worry and constant trying to figure that things out. It felt like I was, I was constantly trying to fix him. That felt super controlling. And he looked at me, I, I remember, and he like screamed at me, there's nothing wrong with me. And there wasn't anything wrong with him, but I, my constant trying to fix sent him this nuanced message, then there must be something that needs fixing. And so he was basically this little seven-year-old wizard. Like, hey, lady, go fix yourself. Because there was a lot, there has been a lot to fix in myself. But it wasn't him that needed the fixing. It wasn't him. This is a new way of looking at things. This may be a conversation that you can't even agree with yet. Or maybe it's very triggering. I get it. I get it. I don't know if younger me would have been willing to hear this level of honesty. But I'm believing in you guys more than younger me. And I'm hoping that this reached some of you and in some way you found it helpful. That's what I got for you this week. Thanks for listening today, guys. I hope you picked up some tips, tools, maybe some baby steps for creating more balance and boundaries in your life. And I just wanted to let you know, if you want to continue moving the needle forward in creating this for yourself, having a happier household, I want you to go to my website and check out mastermindparenting.com. We have three beginning programs. And if you need some accountability and more support, then please look for the one that would be a good fit for you. Um, And as always, we're on all the social channels under Mastermind Parenting. On Instagram, it's mastermind underscore parenting. Um, And, you know, periodically I do pop up on different Instagram lives, Facebook lives, where I give you teaching and coaching. And I love engaging with you live to help you help your strong-willed kids so that they can feel better because when they feel better, they do better. And um, I love, love, love getting to know you guys. So thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Super, super appreciative.